Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blaxland, and today I'm joined by Dr. Chris Pack, lecturer in contemporary writing and digital cultures, Dr. Lloyd Davis, associate professor in modern languages, and Owen Shears, professor in creativity, all of whom are from Swansea University. Their research explores climate change, science and society, and human-animal relationships through narrative. Chris, Lloyd, Owen, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you very much, dear Chabad. Can I start by getting you all just to introduce your research to us. Now there's three of you today, so I'm, I'm going to keep this quite strict and I'm going to give you 60 seconds each to do it. So Chris, we'll start with you. So my research is fascinated by how science fiction makes use of the resources of uh, literature, film, TV, games, in order to engage in a depth probe into society and climate and how factors uh, involved in environmental change resound throughout all aspects of our societies. Great, thank you. Lloyd. My topic is entitled Climate Change, the Response of Literatures in Iberian America. I focus in particular on Latin American literature of both the 19th and 20th centuries. Climate change has been an important part of Latin America since the beginning of the 19th century, but until the mid-20th century, it was very much seen from the critical point of view as a minor background topic. So, my focus is more on the earlier texts, but with an eye too on how the theme was developed later on. Great, thank you. And uh, Owen? Uh, thank you. I guess since around 2006 or 2007, I've become increasingly interested in the role of storytellers, of uh, writers and filmmakers and playwrights in both engaging with the public imagination, but also where possibly perhaps you know, shaping it in terms of of climate change, concepts of decarbonisation and alternative ways of being. In my role in Swansea University, I've been specifically interested in trying to take the conversations around climate change out of the silos to encourage as much interdisciplinary um, engagement and conversation as possible. Again, specifically trying to put artists and storytellers at the centre of that conversation. Well, can we pick up on that actually, Owen, and just talk about how this interdisciplinary approach to, to, to a topic like this, or in, indeed to other topics, is so important. Why, why is it useful or, or, or indeed important to think in this way, to think beyond, as you say, the, the silos? There's a great quote by Margaret Atwood, where when she was talking about climate change, she says that she thinks the term climate change isn't really adequate and it should be called everything change. And of course, we know that is the case, partly because every part of society contributes to our current situation, our carbon-based way of living. And the consequences of climate change will affect everything. And so once you start thinking and reading down that path, you realise that there isn't really sort of any issue or any part of the conversation that can be taken purely in, in isolation. And we have to get out of our silos, firstly, because there is this, um, you know, this a symbiotic relationship between so many of the issues that we're looking at. But I'm also interested in terms of what or how different disciplines can refresh specific and specialist thinking. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. 
just to pick up on something you said about the enormity of this as a topic, mm. something I've spoken about with previous guests in, 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 the, in the first series of this podcast that we did, is that when we speak about climate change, it's such an enormous and complicated and big topic that sometimes that in itself could be an impediment to having the right kinds of discussions about it. Because if I think personally, you know, and I think about the environment, I might think about a a tree that I like down the road that's being chopped down and and I care about a great deal. But when you think about something on this global perspective, it's sometimes hard to get your head around. And And then it's almost something that you choose not to think about. Is that is that fair, do you think? Just throwing you a bit of a curveball question. Well, I mean, I think it is fair, although I think we're in a we're in a drastically different situation on the other side of the COVID experience. Because here we have, in our lived experience, um, a recent example of how as a species we can respond to a threat when the true nature of that threat is clearly uh, communicated you know, by governments to populations and that there's a clear understanding of it. But aside from that, I do hear what you're saying. I think it's partly a consequence of, um, you know, on the one hand, I often think about the story of our inaction over climate change is the story of a failure of narrative at the level of a species over the last you know, 30, 40 years. But it's also the success of a certain counter-narrative, which has told us that there is still doubt in the science, there's no need to worry. And also, I feel, has shifted the onus of responsibility towards individual action and away from systemic action. So, of course, it's going to feel daunting if you think all you can do is, you know, maybe change your energy supplier and you know, try to recycle a bit more. But I think that's partly what I'm interested in sort of reframing is both acknowledging that this is about systems and ways of being, which takes a weight off the individual's their shoulders. But I'm also interested in how we can access and harness existing narratives and sort of I wish that war and conflict wasn't that familiar narrative that we return to, but in a Western culture especially, the Second World War is. And I think in terms of climate change, it's a fantastic example of you know a massive and daunting challenge that was met through strong leadership, but also through a communal determination to create and inhabit a, a different future. So I think there's I completely hear what you're saying, but I think we've barely scratched the surface on actually trying to push back against that feeling. Picking up on narrative then, because amongst many other things, you're a novelist, a very successful novelist, and you tell stories. Is is the telling of stories an effective way of discussing, highlighting you know, the, the big contemporary issues? And if so, why? It's a really good question, because on the one hand, I'd say, well, no, it's not. You know, because good literature is always late to the party and it probably should be late to the party. And the last thing you want is a finger sort of preaching to you out of the page. And I think that's the big challenge for artists and writers at the moment, which is exciting. How do you engage with, let's face it, this incredibly dramatic subject, which comes packed with conflict and moral ambiguity and, and loss and grief and drama? But how do you engage with it without it becoming overly didactic? How do you still make it you know, good art. And I think my answer to that is the answer to your question is that, yes, it does have an important role to play because with an issue like climate change, which, as we've already said, yes, it's about increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but about so much else. It's about how we are. If we can access what the change we're bringing about for ourselves and the planet means and how it feels, I feel that stories are well-placed to start to create that emotional and philosophical map 
which I think will open doors for people into then talking about what needs to happen, you know, and perhaps their role in it. So I think, you know, I, I think that culture is, is absolutely vital. Again, to quote someone else, um, the wonderful writer Amitiv Ghosh, in his uh, book of essays about the role of arts and climate change, he acknowledges that when future generations look back, yes, they will blame the politicians and the bureaucrats for failing to act on climate change. But they will also, he feels, quite justifiably possibly blame the writers, the storytellers, the filmmakers, because it is in their responsibility to imagine alternative futures and perhaps also to peel back a layer on some of the, the absurdities about how we exist now. This, this might be quite a philosophical question, but it comes from my interest in, in novels and in literature. But do you think telling stories about, about climate change, about this, about this subject, would almost build upon a long tradition in literature of you know of kind of end of end of world dystopian novels maybe this is one for for chris as well but you know i'm thinking hg wells michael crichton jg ballard kurt vonnegut all these all these writers who who i like but who where i see a sort of a theme in their work that could potentially be supplanted onto telling stories about climate change is 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 that fair or 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 not i think it is fair i'm sure that chris will be speaking to the really vital role, I think, you know, that science fiction and cli-fi has to play in this area. But I suppose I'm interested in telling stories of now, because we do tend to talk mm-hmm. about climate change in the future. Um, it's here for us, and it's been here for quite a long time for many other populations and you know, many other communities in the world. And that's what I'm interested in accessing. I will come back. To, I'll come back to you, Owen. But um, Chris, do you want to pick up on it on, on any of that? Uh, yes, I uh, would also agree that. Apocalypse is one of the narratives that feeds into how science fiction imagines climate change, either in the near future or far future. But one of the fascinating things that science fiction does with that narrative is that it brings it into contact with other types of narrative. And it attempts to kind of uh, rethink the premises of apocalypse as a way of thinking about how climate change might look in the near future or far future, depending on the kind of uh, narrative we're talking about. And so what's important about that is that it's one of many different traditions that are thrown into the boiling pot, so to speak. And all these ideas are brought to people through discussions of texts. They argue about what's important, what's viable. And so science fiction texts are not simply just the the books themselves or the movies, but they're actually also the discussions about those books and movies that we have, about the themes that they're talking about. So I'd extend science fiction literature to include the the stories and the thinking about the stories that we have and the conversations that we, uh, that we have with one another about those stories. One of the uh, interesting things about science fiction is that another one of these things that it attempts to do is to bring that awareness of systems to the forefront. And so it attempts to imagine connections between locations near and distant and how actions in one place might have an impact elsewhere. And it brings in ideas about science, about uh, the transformation of perhaps global environments, precisely in order to think through a lot of the implications of what is in effect climate change. And science fiction has kind of recognized that, say, transforming another planet is climate change. So those old narrative forms are brought into contact with new narrative forms brought about by science, culture, and the like. And Chris, do you I, I know you said that it's about the wider discussion as well, but do you have a favourite piece of science fiction literature or a, a favourite movie that you think is particularly 
relevant for this topic and this discussion? One of my favorite writers is uh, on this topic of climate change is Kim Stanley Robinson. His work explores the terraforming of Mars, the uh, transformation of Earth in relation to climate change in a, in a kind of near future, an imagined alternative in the Science and the Capital trilogy. What if Al Gore did win the presidency, for example? Now, the figure in that uh, series is not actually Al Gore, but he's modeled against a politician kind of like that. And so uh, Kim Stanley Robinson actually approaches this topic from a number of different angles. The way he revises his earlier positions or the positions that he gives voice to in his narratives, I think is, is a good articulation of how these stories are turned over and over again and made relevant for new contexts. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. This might sound like a simplistic question, but for someone who's not particularly technological, has technology been influenced by science fiction? And I'm thinking of things that you would have seen on the television maybe in the in the late 60s or the early 70s that have then influenced how cultures, pieces of technology have developed. Is that, is that something that we can identify? Uh, yes, there are uh, works that explore, uh, critical works or uh, encyclopedic works that explore the ways in which science fiction has impacted on technological developments or suggested new technologies. Those suggestions might be closer or further away from the reality of those technologies as they're instantiated. And there's also a, a burgeoning kind of area of design fiction that explores the design of new technologies or infrastructures through literature. One of the kind of examples of something like that that was actually commissioned by the Canadian military was Carl Schroeder's Crisis in Zephra, which looked at a conflict area and explored how a multitude of different technologies might be actualized in this area for a number of different reasons. There are a range of different approaches to this and I think that's an interesting and and quite well fun area to actually engage with. One of the things I'm actually really interested in is how science fiction proposes ideas such as the transformation of other worlds and how over a long period of time they actually make their way into public discourse without that connection to science fiction actually being acknowledged or realized. And so there are some implicit ways in which science fiction actually informs our view of a range of different issues. I will come back to you for further discussion of, of some of those themes, hopefully. Um, but I want to bring Lloyd in and, and talk about his work. So Lloyd, what is green literature and why have you decided to focus your research on Hispanic texts in particular? Because I believe that's your that's your area of interest. Yes, well, I am a Hispanist, of course, so um, I am particularly interested in both Peninsula and Latin American literature, but particularly in the Latin American. And I think that green literature uh, is more spectacularly um, exercised in Latin America than in Spain. I think generally speaking, it must be said that the Hispanic world does lag behind a little bit in this area, the Anglophone world, but is quickly catching up. We mentioned the enormity of this subject, and that is what's, what's drawn me to it to a large extent. And in order to try to impress that enormity on 
my readers and audiences, I like to talk about the Anthropocene. And that particular term is in common currency now, but um, it goes back to uh, the 19th century. And it was used first, interestingly enough, by a North Wales geologist called Thomas Jenkin in 1854. And the enormity of climate change was apparent to him. Time is divided by geologists according to shifts in the Earth's state. We are now in a time period, according to Jenkin, that is marked by human influence on the Earth in terms of land surface, oceans, atmosphere, etc. And the term itself is interesting because anthropo, of course, relates to humans and seen to recent is from the Greek word kainos. So it's talking about the way in which the Earth has been influenced recently by human intervention. It is a recent phenomenon. It goes back to the Industrial Revolution and beyond the Industrial Revolution to the so-called Columbian Exchange, which refers, of course, to the arrival of uh, Europeans in the Caribbean in 1492, uh, which led to the largest human population replacement in the past 13,000 years. It inaugurated the first trade networks linking Europe, China, Africa and the Americas and brought about the mixing of previously separate biotas, as they know, that is animal and plant life. So the Columbian exchange is seen as uh, an important aspect of climate change and is clearly a facilitator of the Industrial Revolution, which depended for its success to a large extent on the annexation of the Americas. So the Columbian Exchange contributed to a radical reorganization of life on Earth without geological precedent. It inaugurated to a process of homogenization um, uh, so, and uniformity. Um, and that whole process has been accelerated since the 1950s, of course, with the development of plastics and organic pollutants and atmospheric changes attributable to nuclear bomb tests. So that period known as the Great Acceleration is very important and has influenced the, uh, the work of many Latin American writers. I'd like to, though, to bring in certain um, uh, English writers as well, or better again, Welsh, in the case of Raymond Williams, who talks about the decline of rural England, which is not a precise moment, but a structure of feeling running through English writing over centuries. And we can link that with contemporary travel writing, which shows how far off places seem similar to each other and to home. A sense of the exotic has faded, if not died. Another key term I like to use is the other, which relates particularly closely to Latin America, which is seen as the other of Europe. And this relates the other to people's modes of thought, such as the American indigenous in particular, that do not conform to Western norms. A recent term is that is epistemicide. Episteme, of course, refers to a particular knowledge system. Epistemicide refers to the suppression of non-Western systems, of traditional medicines, community justice systems, local beliefs about the natural world, etc. And what the text, particularly the modern uh, 21st century Latin American texts do, is challenge the notion of human exceptionalism, the idea that uh, humans are human based on what they do not have in common with animals. 
Now, um, as far as my favorite text from Latin America is concerned, it's by a Costa Rican writer. And Costa Rica is particularly interesting because it has a wonderful reputation as an eco-friendly country. It won in 2019 the UN Champion of the Earth Award for its pioneering role in fighting climate change. It also has a unique natural heritage. The country is known for its biodiversity. It possesses at least 10% of the world's species and serves as a biological bridge for species to the north and south. Now, the text, um, which is my favourite, is by Anna Maria Rossi, who is still living. She's about 70 now. And her text, her novel, is called La Loca de Gandoka, published in 1992. That means the madwoman of Gandoka. And it really relates to her because what she found was, quite by chance, that one of the main wildlife refuges in Costa Rica was going to be developed. She found secret plans for the development of hotels and tourist areas and so on, right within this wildlife uh, refuge. She contacted a biologist uh, who gave her support in her opposition to create what was described as a Miami of the jungle with a green McDonald's and a nice skating rink. She took this plan to the Constitutional Court in Costa Rica and then fictionalized her story in the book called The Madwoman of Gandoka, which is the name of the wildlife refuge. In 1995, three years after the publication of the novel, the court ruled in Rossi's favor and ordered the reserve to be protected. Rossi had to leave the country after receiving death threats. But the novel forced an important government resignation and a change of policy. And she can claim then with justification to have empowered the previously silent voices of indigenous communities in Costa Rica were very much opposed to this development. I like that text because it makes literature relevant. It shows how literature can have a concrete influence on government policy and can change things. That sort of power isn't often associated with literature, but her novel did have that effect. Yes, no, I, I, I can I can see why that's so particularly interesting. I'm wondering about how or why drawing attention to these these works in particular might you think then have a wider impact for for now and the future. Well, I I think that in her case, it shows how literature is no longer an elitist uh, activity. Um, It's not just a medium for cultural enrichment. It is really an opportunity for political change, for intervention, for making a difference. And the writers in Latin America haven't had this kind of impact. She does stand out as an exception in this respect. But there's no reason why other writers shouldn't take up the, the challenge and you know, replicate the influence which she has had. There are other writers who have produced very important work, but none with a kind of impact that she has had. I want to go back to Owen just for a second, because you have written a children's book, you've written an opera and a 90-minute drama for the BBC. Now, can you tell us more about how you tied these narratives with these works into the particular subject of of climate change, or were they on slightly different subjects? On the one hand, they are all on 
are very different subjects, you know, and obviously just their formats um, alone mean that they work very differently as stories. I suppose what I've been aware of is something that has happened quite naturally is that thinking about the climate crisis, the ecological crisis, has just so sort of naturally filtered down to every part of me that it's almost impossible for elements of it not to come into works that I'm involved with. But with these three, I specifically wanted to kind of create different angles of entry into the story because, you know, as I was saying earlier, that's what I feel that we need. And I know that we've been talking about literature so far, but I feel very strongly that actually where the stories are told is vital Mm. as well. You know, I mean... You know, possibly really, I mean, East Enders and Coronation Street, that's where we really need these stories to be told at the moment. The 90-minute BBC drama is perhaps an interesting case because it's a historical drama. And maybe this links in some way to something that Chris was saying, that what stories can do when they are looking back, you know. Well, I know that science fiction looks forward, but it's effectively a way of looking back upon our current times as well. The 90-minute BBC drama is about a series of events that became known as Climate Gate which was back in 2009, when um, the University of East Anglia Climate Research Unit had their emails hacked. Extracts from these emails were published online in such a way to make it look as though climate science was cooking the books. And so, as you can hear, it was a very early coalescence of so many of the forces that have actually shaped the last 10 years. Cybercrime, a mistrust of experts and the science and sort of the sharp end of what had been an, an ongoing campaign against climate science, you know, ever since certainly um, the early 1980s. And these email extracts went absolutely viral. They went all up across the world. The University of East Anglia did its best to very quickly point out that there wasn't any truth in these allegations at all. But it was already too late. It was, it was sort of too late within uh, 24 hours. They were kind of drowned out by a global, a global sigh of relief if you like. And so I chose to write about that because that happened at a very interesting time. Obama had just come into power. It was three weeks before the COP in Copenhagen, where there was a real hope that the world would finally meet um, agreements on limiting greenhouse gases. So it came at a vital point in, I suppose, the global storytelling of uh, climate change. And it showed how fragile that story was because three separate studies have since that proved that those events, combined with uh, various other smaller campaigns around that time, knocked public opinion back on climate change by about 10 years. It was successful in knocking us back 10 years. The reason I wanted to tell it now, I suppose, was twofold. I was given access to the scientists and the people at the heart of this story. And yes, their story is about fighting for the truth of science to be heard, but really it's a a very um, emotional story of a family's under stress, which I hope achieves what I spoke about earlier, which goes to the very human core of these kind of moments. But I also wanted to tell it now because I feel that we're at a similar moment in the story of climate change, that global telling of that story. We're at a moment where change feels possible. And I suppose I wanted to sort of raise a flag and say, you know, let's not get complacent. Things can still come along and can and can and knock things off track. Just briefly, I'd say the children's book and the opera are perhaps not quite so on the nose. The children's book is a book that, interestingly, I started writing to engage with the subject of childhood cancer, actually. So the concept of loss and grief. But there were elements in the book that sort of opened up to a concept of what it means to have or to uh, possess something. So there's a pirate ship that goes around the world, sort of, you know, capturing the wonderful rarities of the natural world. And so I hope that speaks 
both to an element of sort of you know biodiversity loss and grief, but also to opening a, a discussion on the concept of owning and of uh, possession. Do we have to physically have something to have an experience of it? The opera, this is an interesting case that when myself and the composer came up with the narrative, it felt very, very far-fetched and the world has tragically caught up with us. And it brings in science fiction. It's inspired by a piece by Forster called The Machine Stops, which interestingly is at the basis of many, many famous uh, science Mm -hmm. fiction films and stories. It depicts a future society that is totally isolated in these honeycomb sort of cells underground and everyone only uh, communicates through screens. And we sort of transposed that to a future where humanity has had to retreat from the physical land and and now lives under the oceans because the world needs to be allowed to uh, rewild. And literally, when we first pitched this, people looked at us like we were totally bonkers and mad. And now it almost feels like something of a cliche. (laughs) And then added to that, we have a world of this humanity that uh, doesn't touch and doesn't see each other and is isolated. And of course, that's all felt very potent. But the opera is about, if we were to begin again, how should we begin? Should we begin with full knowledge of the bad that we have done and the mistakes we've, we've made? Or do we take an opportunity to tell the next generation a different story and to only tell them about the good of humanity, to sort of try to shortcut the mistakes that they might make? And that element, I should say, interestingly, is based on the opera that uh, Dylan Thomas was on his way to make with Stravinsky in California when he tragically died. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. The Machine Stops is something that's only come onto my radar very recently because in terms of Forster novels, we don't know uh, as much about it as I think we should. It's a really... It's a really fascinating no. piece, isn't it? Oh, God, it's absolutely intriguing, and it feels so impressive. You yeah. can't quite believe that he wrote it early, when he did. Early 20th century, wasn't it? I mean, and, yeah. and yeah, it echoes right. down the ages, yeah, completely. Before I ask some sort of general questions, Owen, can you just tell us briefly about the creativity fellowships at Swansea? Yeah, so the thinking behind those were essentially, as we talked about earlier, the concept of bringing artists into contact with a piece of university research and that researcher with a view to creating a, a new art from that research, with a further view to, I suppose, broadening and deepening the audience for the stories of that research. And we've only had the one so far. It's been somewhat interrupted by COVID, but we're very much hoping to continue in that vein and as much as possible to bring artists into contact with citizen scientists as well, to bring in that element of uh, co-creation with the uh, communities. Because I think Something we haven't touched upon yet is how the story of uh, climate change within our society is very often linked to policy. It's a top-down story. And I think what we need to see, and I hope we'll see, is that story also growing from the bottom up and kind of meeting in the middle so that it feels less like homework. And that's a phrase that a filmmaker said to me recently who I was talking to about maybe working together. And he made the point, he said, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, climate change, it's full of drama, full of human emotion and conflict. And yet, why does it always feel like homework? And I feel like that's the question we need to answer. Well, do you know what? You're, you're leading me on to, on to my next question, which was deliberately going to be very broad and, and open-ended, but, but, it, but it does relate to that. And maybe it's an opportunity 
for all three of you to talk about aspects we haven't covered yet, which is that when we've covered this topic in the past, we've always spoken to scientists. We've always spoken to engineers and people working on innovative, new, clean energy technology and and, and things like that. But all three of you come from the broad field of arts and humanities. So why is it important to bring, and I know we've discussed this to an extent already, but let's, let's try and maybe pick a few things out. Why is it important, do you all think, to get the perspective of, as it were, this side of the, the academic spectrum involved in this discussion? So Chris, maybe if you want to start with that, why should the arts and humanities voices be, be more prominent? Uh, well, one of the key things is context and perspective. We can speculate on a range of different specific technologies, but how are those technologies actually going to work for the people on the ground? Um, Technologies are not things that you can plug in anywhere and they will have a predictable effect. People make use of technologies in different ways. They feature in people's lives in different ways. They have ramifications in different uh, locations where they're actually instantiated. And so one of the fascinating things that science fiction does is it attempts to think through the implications of any technological intervention or the lack of of one of those in relation to the stories of people's lives as they're affected by that. So a writer such as Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife um, explores droughts in the uh, southwestern United States. It speculates on what might happen if we don't look at the infrastructures in that region uh, with a a view to kind of averting or, or turning the course away from from that uh, lingering drought. It talks about what the actual impact would be, not just for those people in that area, but for the people in other states surrounding that area who may be forced to uh, confront the realities of climate migration in an area of the world where climate migration is assumed to not be something that they have to worry about. And so what these uh, narratives do is that they tell us how technology is actually important for our lives as as individuals and members of a, a community. So it can really help us understand what the significance of those uh, technologies or, or policies even uh, will be for those on the ground. Another key thing it does is that it tells us how policies and technologies might actually erase specific constituencies, interests, needs, desires. People get forgotten when we roll out an infrastructure or a technology. And so some of these works also show us uh, the things that we must consider and that might uh, be overlooked if we were to take a broader instrumental focus. Lloyd, what do you think? Yes, well, I think the question was relevance of the arts and humanities, and I think it's very important for us to do that. Uh, Students often ask me or have remarked in the past, particularly with texts such as Don Quixote, which are very long and used to be read in Spanish, what is the point of my reading this? My field is going to be business studies. This is going to help me. When we look at literature which is able to impact or practical policies, government policies, that makes them uh, think twice about the uh, questioning of literature. And it makes it clear that literature has uh, special value in this area. The other point is perspective, I think. Um, The desert is very important in Latin American literature. Um, Alex von Humboldt uh, talked about uh, South America as the desert continent. Desert is seen as negative, but we try to In our work, uh, looking at these texts, we see desert in a different perspective. It can be seen as positive. It is, of course, a hostile 
reality. It's hostile to man. It's a place of extreme temperatures and so on, of lack of water and food, absence of boundaries and landmarks. But it also can be seen metaphorically as a place which is new, which is unexplored, which offers new possibilities. It's a place too where naming even is thwarted because the desert is governed by sameness. But some artists have taken up this sameness. They have used repetition in their work to effect and have shown that although little happens in the in the desert, the desert can serve as a metaphorical vehicle for questioning our possibilities as human beings and perhaps making us ask questions which haven't been asked before about our place in the world and particularly the centrality of our place in the world and our openness to realizing that our place is only a part of the whole rather than the centre of it. Owen, anything you'd like to add to this particular conversation? Yeah, well, actually, I'm going to quote Swansea University's motto, which translates in English as a technical skill is empty without culture. Um, so I think for me, the answer to your question is because we have to bring everyone with us on this story. And, you know, culture is a very immediate way of making us feel part of something, but also allowing us to see ourselves from outside of ourselves. And I think we can't underestimate the gulf in understanding there is between the nature of the threat that climate change and biodiversity loss poses and the levels of knowledge, and I mean, you know, sort of street level public knowledge. And I think it's in that space where both, you know, current uh, technologies and science, but together with culture and storytelling, have a, an absolutely vital role to play. Can I play devil's advocate for a second uh, and put my, put my historian's hat on? Because that's my speciality. I'm a, I, I, I study and write about 20th century history. But I'm quite conscious that throughout, well, the past several hundred years, there have been many moments in human history where, I think you said earlier, Owen, that you know we're at a make or break moment. And often humans do tend to think that, you know, we have to get something right now or else there will be a disaster or a catastrophe. And actually what has been relevant at those times is simply just small adaptions and changes. Why is it that we need radical change now instead of just adaptions and, and small changes? Simply because we have such a weight of scientific empirical evidence. So our ability to look down the years is so much sharper uh, and, and uh, so much more accurate. It used to be that the future was scary because you didn't know what was coming. Now it's scary because we do know. So that would be my answer. I think I just add to that that, depending on how far back you look, uh, we're at a position now where never before has so much uh, been able to be done by so few. So a small number of people are able to make decisions that have a resounding effect across the globe. And that hasn't really been quite the case, historically speaking. So given that our range of powers for a select few have grown, then it stands to reason that we should pay more attention to what those powers are actually doing to reshape our world, the worlds that we all live in. Can I just ask something about COVID-19 and about where we find ourselves now? which is that if you're very concerned about climate change and the environment, in some ways you couldn't have designed a better situation, could you, than COVID, which is where air travel is down globally, we're all driving far less. Do you see there being an upside to COVID in that we are going to maybe have to live more locally? I don't know who wants to deal with that first, maybe Lloyd. 
Yes, I think there certainly is. Um, I haven't flown in an aeroplane since 2006, um, and I don't intend to ever again. I've been in meetings recently where academics have said that, that they would not fly again. And I think that kind of um, determination has been uh, heightened, I think, by the COVID crisis. It's been forced on people. Students are changing their minds about travel and are taking far more note of it. I don't know if either of you want to come in on that briefly. Yeah, I think, um, Lloyd, you're completely right. And it also really depends on what kinds of lessons we learn from COVID. One of the things that Owen mentioned before is that it's quite easy to slide back. And it is easy to imagine a situation where once the threat of COVID appears to be diminishing, people return to the ways that um, they're used to before COVID with greater relish. And so... One of the interesting things about science fiction is it teaches us that these kind of uh, plagues and outbreaks um, are actually expected, and we might actually expect more and more severe ones coming. So for some, the current crisis doesn't really come as a surprise. But again, it really depends on the kinds of lessons we learn and what we're willing to do to address future potential occurrences. Yeah, um, I think for me, I think COVID presents possibly a very positive moment, but not so much for those practical reasons of us driving and flying less, because in other ways we've had many more people staying at home, heating the houses, which actually produces many more greenhouse gases than aviation does. And also, it's also occupied the news space and the conversation space at a time when we really need to be talking about climate change. But I think it is positive because of something I said earlier, which it uh, presents us with an example and a proof that that ingrained um, and rapid cultural change, it can happen and that we can respond to something as a species. I know that there have been issues around borders and vaccines and that kind of thing, but on the whole, this has been um, a global response. And so I hope it's that element that we pick up on, on what we can do when the story of a threat and its possible solutions are told clearly and urgently. Historians call things like that sticky. They say, you know, things don't move for a long time or things move very, very slowly and then suddenly things move quickly. And I think mm. COVID's an example of that. I just want to ask before we finish, there are hopefully lots of young people listening to this and some of them might well be aspiring writers who want to, who want to you know, develop or work on developing narratives, not just around climate change, but about big issues that they, they care about. So what advice would you give them? Well, I suppose, you know, face up to that challenge that I mentioned at the start is, you know, at the end of this, you've got to make you know, good art. Is what you're writing a good story, regardless of the um, issue? And, you know, a look for that surprising angle of entry. Have a look at books that are coming out now that are achieving this. So there's a wonderful novel about to come out by a um, Romanian author called Oana Aristide, I think, uh, called Under the Blue, which I think uh, does this perfectly. But also look outside of the form that you're writing. And I think, you know, one of the best writers for embedding issues and engaging change in their work, but still just writing, you know, cracking TV drama is our very own Russell T. Davis, you know, a Swansea boy who mm. with Queer as Folk and It's a Sin and then um, his recent drama Years and Years, which I think is the first time that TV drama has really you know, tackled the human drama of what we're doing and uh, might mean. So even if you are writing books and poems, you make sure to look outside of your own artistic silos as well. well. I think that's probably a good 
place at which to uh, which to stop with that sort of rallying call almost. Uh, but so thank thank you to all three of you. We could have we could have talked for a, a lot longer, obviously, about a very big topic. But if you want to find out more about our guests' research, you can visit their staff profiles on the Swansea University website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening and thank you again to our guests, Dr. Chris Pack, Dr. Lloyd Davis and Professor Owen Shears. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. I'm Sam Blaxland and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.